uh, he's ministered to us as he just is faithful to do time and time again. Acts 28, we're going to be looking at the first 16 verses. Uh, but first, I don't mean to brag, but guess who went to the state fair this last week? This guy, which means if I went to the state fair, two things are true. Number one, I ate some amazing food that I will never eat again, for, at least for another year, right? The best was the uh, fried chicken on a skewer coated with nacho cheese sauce and crumble hot Cheetos all over it and pickles. Let me just tell you, it was worth every bit of money I paid for that thing. So, so good. Second thing that's true is that one of my kids will not go to college because of the cost of things at the state fair. So, it is expensive, isn't it, right? So, man, so uh, I don't know who's not going to go to college, but pray for our family. Someone, someone's not going to get a continuing education. So, um, but while I was there, uh, I had to poke my head into one of the side stages where there was a Bon Jovi tribute band. Let's go, right? So these guys, you know, I'm a, I'm a kid of the 80s, right? I grew up on all that metal, hair, hard rock, hair metal, glam rock, whatever you want to call it. So we, we sat in, and, you know, my, my daughter was there, and we looked at each other and said, we will know within the first 30 seconds whether these guys are legit. I'm going to tell you, we stayed through eight songs at least, which means they did a good job, right? They came out. The guy somewhat looked like, you know, John Bon Jovi, but the sound was so good. And we were just looking at each other like, these guys are good. My wife follows them on Instagram now, right? So, you know, these guys were legit, right? But I was thinking about, like, what if they would have really sucked, right? What if they came out and were like, we love Bon Jovi, and the 30 seconds you're like, these guys did not nail it. We're out of here, right? What is a tribute? A tribute is honoring something that you admire, something that you enjoy, somebody or someone you, you respect. So I was thinking to myself, and this is the way pastors think, as I'm sitting there for the Bon Jovi tribute band, I'm going, how does my life reflect or bring a tribute to the God I say I love and worship? Is my life, could people say, hey, you want to see a Jesus tribute guy? Go look at Scott Morgan. Do I reflect that? Do you reflect that? Because if Bon Jovi's tribute band, this guy, these guys would have not honored who they say they really appreciate, we would have said, yeah, you guys need some work to do, right? But how desperately the world needs Jesus tribute people, amen? We are living in a world that is in darkness. We are living in a world that is struggling in hopelessness. And we are called to be the light of the world. Salt to somehow bring flavor, to bring preservation. Somehow our presence is meant to, to be a good thing. And yet, we say we love him, but are our lives a tribute to him? All throughout the Bible, there are, there are these, these, these places that we go to help us think about, how do I look like Christ? How do I bring tribute to Jesus? How do I reflect what, what, who Jesus is, what he, who he was, who he was, and who he's going to be, and how does my life reflect the character of Jesus? And we would be uh, hard-pressed to find places in Scripture that don't encourage us in godliness and Christ-likeness. So we come to Acts 28, because here we go. We see this place where I think we, we recognize how we can do better, how we can continue to pursue being clothed like Christ, Right? Paul says in, in other places in the New Testament, clothe yourselves with, 
humility, clothe yourselves with grace, clothe yourselves with kindness, all these things that characterize the life and, and ministry of Jesus Christ. You and I have no greater objective than to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Amen? Romans chapter 8. God's sole work in you is to get you to that end for you to look like Christ. I don't want the world to look at you and go, you're a tribute to Jesus, 30 seconds, I'm out. I want them to stick around and go, there's something different. I'm, I'm going to listen. I'm going to stay through six songs. I'm going to stay through 10 songs. I want to stick around you because you are studying him so well. You're learning the lyrics. You're learning the music. Wow, you know what? You're good. You're good. And this is all God's power in and through us. Amen? This is, this is nothing that you and I can just do, of our own, you know, do on our own. It's the power of God that's mightily at work within us to conform us to look like Jesus. So we turn to Acts 28. And as you remember last week, we covered a huge bunch of material, right? In, in Acts 27, this shipwreck that Paul was on. And, and I'm going to just say kudos to you guys because we covered one full chapter in one sermon. So uh, I don't know if that's a miracle on your end, a miracle that, that God performed through me. I don't know. But we got through a whole chapter. Now we're in chapter 28. And as you know, these guys have been shipwrecked. And now we're saying, now what? Now what? What's going to happen to the apostle Paul? And as we know, God had said, I'm taking you to, to Rome. Nothing's going to stand in, in the way. That's why I think he's so calm. He's so confident. He's so courageous. He's so content, right? God says, I'm taking you to Rome. So no matter what his circumstances have been up to this point, there's something in his heart that says, nope, God promised me something, and I know he's going to be true to his promise. Amen. Acts 28, check this out. We're going to learn a lot about... Um, encouragement here. Because if, if anywhere, any time along the way, Paul has needed encouragement, it's now. And he's almost there, right? This is almost like the, the 11th hour in his life. You would think God would take it easy on, on, his, on his, his child, but he, he hasn't. He's still growing through these, these circumstances, these trials, these difficulties. And yet he's not at Rome, but yet there's encouragement along the way. And I think encouragement is one of those things we as the body of Christ can demonstrate to one another. God is an encouraging God. He's a God who continues to breathe compassion and grace and kindness and mercy into our lives, and he's there to encourage us along the way. And so the question for us is, how do we learn to encourage one another? What are some of the qualities of encouragement? And I think we see that in this passage. Look at chapter 28, verse 1. We're going to read through uh, just the beginning of verse 16. So if you have your Bibles, read along with me. And when they had been brought safely through right? The storm and the shipwreck. They found out that they were on this island called Malta, which literally means refuge, which literally means refuge. So write down your notes. Um, and then the natives or the barbarians, this is a good way to think of people, right? Showed us extraordinary kindness for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. How many? 276 on board that boat. And not one person lost their life. So you remember, it was Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, three believers among 273 others who didn't know Jesus. So they gathered this all, received this all, but when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out of the heat uh, of the fire and fastened on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from Paul's hand, they began saying to one another, 
oh man, this guy is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, Paul shook the creature off his hand into the fire, and he suffered no harm. And they were expecting him to die, to swell up, suddenly fall down. But after that, they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him. They changed their minds about the situation and began to say that he's a god. Boy, people are so quick to conclusions, aren't they, right? Like, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it came about that the father of Plubius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. Not fun. That's what happens after state food, fair food right there, right? So, uh, and Paul went in to see him. After he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. Miracle on the island of Malta. And after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. And they also honored us with many marks of respect. And when they were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. And at the end of three months, we set sail on the Alexandrian ship, which had uh, wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead, also known as Gemini. So you can write that in your notes. These were the guardians of the ocean, according to Greek mythology. And after we put out to Syracuse, no, not New York, just like Phoenix last week was not Arizona, right? Uh, we stayed there for three days, and then from there we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up, and we uh, landed at Patuli, Patuli, not Patchouli, some of you, you know, that really like those fragrances. This is the Bay of Naples, modern-day Naples. And from there, we found some brethren, and were invited to stay with them for seven days and thus we came to Rome, and the brethren, when they had heard about us, came from as far as the market of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And when Paul looked at them, he thanked God and took courage. And when we entered Rome, and we'll stop right there, may God write his eternal truths upon our hearts today. Four things I want us to look at in this passage about encouragement. And you'll notice last week we studied the journey from Caesarea all the way up along the coast, the storm right there. Remember the two weeks at sea where the zigzag is, and they're ultimately right now at Malta, but then they're going to set sail up through Syracuse, Regium, and then up to the uh, Bay of Naples, and then from the Bay of Naples, which is Patchouli, 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 I, however you pronounce that. Where's Paola's? Paola Davis here. She's our resident Italian. So um, they walk 140 miles from that point to Rome. They walk five days, but eventually Paul gets to Rome. But we can't miss out what happens on this final leg of the journey. First point you need to see is that um, we can be encouraged as we heal. There's encouragement in our healing. Isn't it cool that they land on this place called Malta, which is, literally means refuge? Now, here's the good news about healing. We have a place of refuge. You know where that is? Jesus. Who says to us, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Boy, Paul has been through a journey. He needed a place like Malta to land and to spend how long? Three months. There are three months on this island. And he needed a place to just stop 
and heal. And that's the impressive thing about this section of scripture that we just read. The whole passage is characterized by healing. Healing is taking place here. It was a needed season for Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, and the others. It was Hippocrates, great Greek philosopher, who said, healing is a matter of time, but it is also a matter of opportunity. So many times we think it's just about time, but it's really about opportunity. We have roles in one another's lives that we can seize upon those opportunities to be encouragement to one another. Therefore, encourage one another as you see the day drawing near. Encourage one another as we're going through trials and tribulations. Encourage one another. Be a refuge for one another. And as we have refuged our souls in Christ, we can also share in refuging our lives among one another. These men needed a time to just emotionally and physically be ministered to. And isn't it interesting who God would use to minister to these guys? The natives of the island. Which brings us to point number two. There's encouragement in our hospitality. Here's what I love about this. The occupants of this island would welcome these weary strangers in. It's almost like they heard the ruckus of the ship breaking uh, up off the coast, and they're hearing men, you know, swimming. You remember what the, 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 the captain said? He said, those who can swim, jump. Those who can't swim, grab a plank and just surf your way into the shore, right? And you can just imagine the, the, the locals of Malta are just going, what's going on? 276 men coming to them. And you know what I love? They didn't build a wall. Can I get political real quick? They didn't build a wall be like, we don't know you, stay out. They welcomed the stranger. They didn't check IDs at the beach. They showed hospitality because that's what we do. That's what we do. We welcome strangers and without asking questions, without looking at them on the exterior and being like, you're not my color, you're not welcome. Wait, you don't vote like me? Wait, you, you don't like the same football teams I like? You're, you're, you're not welcome here. No, what does it say? Those barbarians, those people that did not know Greek culture, they did not know Greek language, they didn't understand the customs and ethics of their time. What did they do? They gave those strangers heat and hospitality. They built a bonfire, they fed them, and they said, Mi island es su island. Is that how you say it in Spanish? I don't know. Isla. Mi isla, su isla. Is that right? Is that close? Come on, give me, give me props, Carla. Give me props. All right. So, so here they are. Two things mark their hospitality. Church, we would learn well from these men and women who live on the island who showed hospitality to the strangers. And just so you know, I'm not about open borders fully, but I am open about processes in place that can help people get a better life in this place we call America. Amen? I don't believe in closing them, and I don't believe in fully opening them. I do believe in a proper process that we can welcome men and women who want a new chapter for their lives. Amen? Two things these guys do here. They show unconditional acceptance... And they show extraordinary kindness. Think about it. The church would do well to stop judging people. The church would do well to live like Jesus. 
Jesus, you know what his reputation was? That guy's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. He's out, in the, he's out among the riffraff. He's out among those who, who, who don't worship like him, who maybe don't even believe him. He showed love to everybody. No one could point to Jesus and say, he didn't love me. No one could point to Jesus and say, he didn't show me grace. No one could point to Jesus and say, he did not, he wasn't kind to me. Boy, may nothing like that ever stick, that, that we're unloving, we're ungracious, we're not kind, we're not merciful. May people know we love them. Without blinking an eye, we'd be willing not only to love and show grace, but to extend any means of help necessary. People are hurting. People are in despair. They, need, they don't need you to come along and not accept them. Right? These, these men and women who are on this island opened up their arms and said, come out, come out of the ocean. <laughs> and it's still raining, so they're building a fire. Get dry, and you better believe the warmth of that fire and the warmth of their hospitality ministered to these people. And notice what Luke says. They showed us extraordinary kindness. This is not just being nice. This is going above and beyond and showing this hospitality that says, whatever you need, I will give you. Whoa. From these Maltese islanders to Publius, who we'll see later, they, they did not hold anything back. A few weeks ago, after second service, my wife texted me and she's like, um, we've got a bunch of people coming over for lunch, right? This was just unplanned. It wasn't on the calendar. And there was, I think, close to maybe 13 to 15 people. And my first thought is, how are we going to feed 15 to 13 people? Leave it to a P31 woman. I say P31, Proverbs 31. I call my wife a P31 woman because she looks like the woman from Proverbs 3, 31 all the time. So here's a woman who basically said, I cleaned out the fridge and the freezer. We're having these people over. And I walk into a house full of people. And there's food, and let me just tell you, there's no rhyme and reason. I mean, there was mozzarella sticks and caviar. There was, there was you know, uh, Shasta soda and, uh, you know, just plain water. There was, you know, all this stuff. Everything we could basically get out of the cabinets and fridge was there to serve our guests. And after it was all said and done, we were just like, this is awesome, right? Like, it doesn't, you know, it's not like, no, we can't do it today. We're going to do it next week so I can properly shop and properly prepare. No, it was a spontaneous, like, we're going to show hospitality to some new folks. They came over, hung out at our house. We had this, this it was like state fair at our house that day, you know, with all the foods. But you know what? Everyone had a great time, and it wasn't about the food. It was about the fellowship. May that tribe increase. May you be the kind of people that say, I'm going to allow my home, my fridge, my pantry, my stuff to be a means to, to engage and connect with others. There's a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. She was a woman who uh, was very active in the LGBTQ community. She was a uh, professor of women's studies, and I think at Yale, uh, God saved her. And now she's one of the most prominent speakers on same-sex attraction. Super good. If you ever have a chance to read her material, Rosaria Butterfield, she's amazing. But the reason she came to know Christ, one of the, the means that God used for Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield to come to know Jesus was the hospitality of a pastor and his wife that she didn't agree with about anything. 
She went to church with her partner, same-sex relationship. This pastor and his wife said, come to our house for lunch. And they did that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And Rosaria Butterfield saw the love of Christ in this pastor and his wife, and she surrendered her life to Jesus. Rosaria Butterfield would say hospitality is perhaps one of the greatest means of evangelism, and yet it's one of the very areas that we are negligent in. Who are you hanging out with? Who are you showing extraordinary kindness to? Who are you inviting into your home? Who are you dining with? Here's, an, here's, the, here's what I know. I eat three meals a day. And I know so, at least, yes, thank you. And I know you at least eat three meals a day. There are some meals that God says you eat with somebody else. You share the table with somebody else. And you never know that through your act of extraordinary kindness, because last time I checked, God has shown us extraordinary kindness. He's invited us to our table, his table. You know, we're like Mephibosheth, right? The son of Jonathan who was lame, who didn't deserve a spot at the king's table. He saves the best spot for the crippled person. I'm thankful that God has saved a spot for this crippled man. Stop judging people. Stop condemning people. Stop acting like you're the Holy Spirit. That you can determine who's near Jesus and who's not. And just love all people. Honor people. Show people kindness and acceptance as you have been shown these things as well. Boy, I tell you what, hospitality. You have a home. You have a table. You have food. Share it. Share it. We don't need to build more church buildings. We need to use the, the church property that God's already given to us and it's called our home mortgage. Can I get an amen from somebody? Use your home as an opportunity to love those who are far from Christ. We need to be better in our hospitality. We need to be better neighbors. Point number two, or three, encouragement in our humility. And again, don't be the kind of person that's like, you know what, I have achieved humility in my life, I'm writing my first book on it. Don't be that person. Humility is something that I think is a, is, a, is a supernatural byproduct of following Christ, and perhaps there's no greater quality about Jesus than his humility. God stepped away from the corridors of heaven to dwell among us, to become like us, a bondservant. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And humility is celebrated in, in, in Philippians chapter 2, the great him of Christ and his humility. And he comes to serve. And here's the God of the universe serving us. We can learn a lot about this. This is confounding indeed. And perhaps humility is the mark of those who truly know Christ and walk with Christ and don't think that this world is about them and revolves around them. I think you are no closer to, the, to Christ than when you serve out of the spirit of Christ. Matter of fact, write that down. I don't think you're closer to walking with Christ than when you're serving selflessly out of that spirit that Christ has given to you as a believer in Christ. Three things I want us to look at that are found in this passage. There's humility in circumstances, there's humility in character, and there's humility in calling. First one, humility in circumstances. 
think about this. Paul is continuing to learn humility in his 25 years of following Jesus. As if God is saying, you know what, hey, you know what, you've had enough. You're going you're gonna to get some smooth sailing in your life, literally and figuratively. It's not going to happen. Paul is continually humbled in this journey. So much so when he lands on Malta, you don't see him sipping coconut juice under a palm tree. Look at what happens here. These people show kindness. Verse 3, but when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks. See, we're so quick to pass over little things like this. This is the task given to women and children. Not the great apostle of Jesus Christ. Or is it? See, there is no menial task in Paul's world. There is nothing too low for him to do. He sees the Maltese building this fire. You know what Paul does? He goes, I'm jumping in. I'm going to help him. Is that awesome? If you think there's a task too low for you, you don't understand the ministry of Jesus Christ. You're sitting there going, walking by a piece of paper on the floor. You're like, yeah, someone else will get that. Like, you're too good. You don't understand the spirit of Christ. You don't understand that you do not exist to be served, but you exist to serve like Christ. You don't understand the spirit of Christ. Here is Paul, who was never off duty with God. Can I tell you, this is one of the funny things about my life as a pastor that I continue to learn. Those times when I was like, oh good, I get to go on vacation, and all of a sudden there's a ministry opportunity in Porta Vallarta. Because that's how you pronounce it. Did I sound, does it sound pretty good? Okay, our resident hey, you know what? I love Carla. She's there to check me on my Espanol. So there's never a moment you, as a follower of Christ, it doesn't matter whether you're a pastor or not, you are never off duty when it comes to the work of God. To serve, to show, to demonstrate. Paul adopted this mentality. He's showing humility by picking up wood, and he's going to show humility by healing others. No job was beneath. He didn't stand back and be like, I dare not, being a man of the cloth, touch filthy wood. You do that. No. There was nothing like, oh, that is beneath me. While you work, I'll direct the activity. There was nothing like that. Paul said to himself, have this mind among yourselves that you do not consider anything from emptiness or selfish conceit, but consider others' needs as more important than yourself, you serve. No task is too small for the servant of God who has the mind of Christ. Amen? Just this last week, I was at a pastor's conference for, for the day. On Thursday, and I, I connected with some people I hadn't seen in a while, and other men who are in ministry, and guys I've gone to seminary with, not cemetery, seminary, uh, sometimes it looks like a cemetery, you know, it was like, uh, you know, uh, but in the bathroom, there was my mentor who I've known for 40 years, pastored a large church in Phoenix, president, interim president of the seminary. We're talking in the bathroom because sometimes that's where dudes have the best conversations, right? In the bathroom, we're sitting there at the urinal with each other and, you know, but here is Rick. He and I are talking and he's wiping down the men's sink area in the bathroom. And as we're talking, I'm noticing him doing this task. And I'm just like, who does this? Who does this? He could have easily said, 
this place is filthy. Wait till I text the janitor and I lay one on them about how horrible. You know, he's in there just cleaning up the, the bathroom sink. And I'm going, thank you, Rick. Thank you for once again showing no task is beneath you. Amen, church? Paul and Jesus modeled this character of authority as service. Luke 22, look what Jesus says here. Luke 22, I think we have the passage up here. So Jesus, I love it. A dispute rose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. Let me just tell you guys, none of you are the greatest. Can we just put that out there? Maybe we need to lead off our conversations. Of, hey, Dave, you're not great today. Hey, <laughs> Jesus is, right? Hey, Lino, you're not great today, brother. Jesus is, right? None of you are the greatest, so let's just stop this. Let's just stop. And he says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Don't act like the world acts. This striving for greatness, this striving for reputation, this striving for position, right? Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. It is truly countercultural, isn't it? It is truly adopting a different mentality that says, you do not exist to serve me. I am here to serve you, and thus should your motto be for your life as well. How many of us need to hear that today? Your spouse your kids, your co-workers are not in your life to serve you. You are in their lives to serve them. And recognize that though your service may, may not be acknowledged and it may be ignored, there is one who sees the Spirit of Christ in you. And when that Spirit says, you serve, he sees it. And he is honored by your selfishness selfless, sacrificial service that's done in the spirit of Jesus. Paul's here serving. He's serving. He's cleaning, right? I remember when I was first called to ministry, 15 years old, on my way back from Ensenada, Mexico. God in that 15-passenger van said, you're not going back to the United States the same way you, you left. You are going to serve me the rest of your life. 15 years old, I get this call in my life. I go to my youth pastor at the time, Ken, Dear brother, still talk to Ken today. And I said, Ken, I think God's calling me to be a pastor. And so Ken was like, all right, let's get you involved, right? And so I was doing music, and I was doing some little speaking opportunities, and I had this really cool upfront and very public-type ministry. And then Ken left, and another youth pastor came in, and I thought it was going to be the same, but it wasn't. That summer with this new youth pastor, I did not spend time playing music and speaking and having a public upfront ministry. That summer, I spent cleaning the bathrooms at the church and vacuuming the carpets at the church. And I'm thinking to myself, this is not what I signed up for. And yet it was a, it was a very summer that God would teach me some of the most profoundest lessons. That what's done for Christ, however menial, is meant to bring God glory. It's meant to be, meant to be the, for the benefit of somebody else other than me. Yeah, that other stuff, it, it, it made me feel good about myself. But serving and cleaning bathrooms and scrubbing toilets and vacuuming carpets, I tell you what, that taught me something more about the Spirit of Christ than anything else. And after that summer, 
as I was gritting my teeth and cursing God under my breath and cursing other leaders under my breath, God, at the end of that summer, said, have you learned what I wanted you to learn? And I said, yes, yes, Lord. And I will forever remember that summer, 35 stinking years ago, that sometimes you take the basin and the towel and you stoop and you wash feet. This is not about who's the greatest and who's the most popular and who's the most dynamic and who's the most charismatic and who's the prettiest and who's the most... This is who is the one who is willingly, silently going to pick up the basin and the towel and do the filthy work. Let us never consider ourselves too good or too important to minister to somebody else in the most humble way. The most humble way. Which speaks to number two, humility and character. You know, sometimes these practices of serving somebody else are merely just practices, but I think God wants to etch this stuff on our character go through seasons like a summer serving a church cleaning toilets, right? Where he says, I'm going to etch this on your character because this is not just something, this is what you do. This is something who you are. Amen? Humility in our character. Paul's character is being deepened. It's being etched. It's becoming more Christ-like. And I love his silent evangelism. Notice he's not saying, hey guys, I'm picking up sticks so I can show you the gospel. I'm doing this so you can somehow see Jesus in me. He's not saying, he doesn't, we don't even hear of Paul sharing the gospel on this island at all. Now I'm not going to say he didn't, but it's interesting that Luke leaves that out. He's just, it's called silent evangelism. Your demonstration, not so much your proclamation of the gospel. Don't we need both? We don't need all demonstration and no proclamation because then people are like, hey, why are you doing what you're doing? Oh, nothing, just doing it. But we don't need to be like, Jesus saves, accept him as Lord, right, and not serve people. We need a balance. So here's Paul serving. And in his serving, look what happens. Verse 3, a snake jumps out of the fire. <laughs> guys, this guy's been through, as if this is like, come on, can't this guy get to catch a break? Remember, he's been beaten, he's been stoned, he's uh, been in prison, he's been in shipwrecks, he's even hung on a plank of, of wood for 24 hours in the ocean. And just when you thought, can this guy catch a break? Nope, a viper jumps out of the fire and attaches itself to him. Snake bite! Oh. And notice, peop and notice how calm he is. He shakes it off. Almost as if, yeah, I didn't mention it on my other list, but it's happened before. He shakes it off, and everyone's watching. And he's not like, yeah! Like, he's not like cursing, going, yeah! Like, how we survive snake bites sometimes, and how that perception is from other people and how we're going through difficulties is a huge ministry. When you're going through difficult times, there's nothing wrong with crying. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with maybe feeling like a little bit of pain. But Paul just shakes it off and just like continues. And they're all like, okay, he's going to die. So, so notice their false theology. Divine retribution. 
they don't know anything about Paul, but they're like, in their minds, justice is happening. He must have done something bad for him to incur this, this tragedy because they're expecting him to die. They know they're snakes. The snake's poisonous. It, it bit Paul. He's going to die. He doesn't die. So they shift from he's you know, guilty of something to he's a god. But notice how Paul doesn't be like, what are you guys talking about? Let me correct your theology right now. He doesn't do that. He serves them. He'll, he'll teach them some good theology later, but he serves them. Can, can I just stop real, real quick and just, it, sometimes we have this mentality like these natives where we walk through this world and go, yep, that guy is getting what he deserves. You ever, you ever felt that? You ever said that to somebody? The world knows that there's this system of justice, and it's, you know, we, they call it karma or yin-yang, like what comes around goes around, right? Like, oh, you've incurred some, you know, some tragedy, therefore there must be some sin in your life. Can, can, can we just address this real quick? We need to stop and go, um, maybe an example from baseball, go D-backs. You like how I, bro I broke out the special attire today. There's a pitcher in the 80s by the name of Dave Dravecki. He pitched for the Padres. He pitched for the Giants, 82 to 89. Uh, amazing pitcher. Loved Jesus. Got cancer in his pitching arm. Retired from the game. Wrote a biography of this journey, this season in his life. Was speaking at a chapel service. Some guy in his 20s came up to Dave after the chapel and said, you know why you have cancer? is because there's some sin that you haven't confessed in your life. Good job, body of Christ. Yeah, there's people out there all over like this. They're just looking for, you know, someone that they can act like a Pharisee to. You know why you have cancer? You have sin in your life that you haven't confessed. So here's Dave Dravecki <laughs> listening to this guy that his sin is a result of, or his cancer is some result of personal sin. And he's thinking to himself, if it was, what kind of God would we be serving? And then in his book, I'm going to quote Dravecki directly. He says this, the issue in these situations is not our character, but the character of God. Is God the kind of God who gives people tumors when they sin? Does he dole out diseases when we fail him? Say maybe cataracts when we lust or hardening of the arteries when we hate? Does he punish us with leukemia and muscular dystrophy and blindness? I'll tell you who thought that. The Pharisees thought that. When they came across a blind man, John chapter 9, they asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. Jesus responded and said, neither. And then proceeded to heal the man. And then he quotes Psalm 103. Check out this psalm. Verses 10 through 14. Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Praise God. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Woo! As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For we... For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. 
the word compassion jumps out. And then here's what Dave says. Is that a picture of a father who takes a belt to his children when they spill their milk or wet their pants? Is that the picture of a God who gives people cancer when they sin? I felt sad that this man was carrying around such a distorted picture of God. And I wondered how that picture would get him through life when one day he would have to walk through his own valley of suffering. People are going to say all sorts of crazy things. People who are far from Jesus don't have a proper theology. They're getting through life trying to make, make sense of things, and guess what? It's, it's, it's pretty bad. But may we as God's people not be the ones peddling in horrible theology. May we as the people of God be a presence of some, some, something different, something wise, something discerning. No pun intended, but Jesus said, be innocent as doves and wise as serpents. There's, there's balance there. And notice he doesn't attack them in their bad theology. He serves them. He's completely unaffected by their mistaken notion about who he is, whether he's guilty or whether he's a God. He doesn't even deal with it. And sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, there's something more important that we're called to do than address bad theology. Sometimes it's our presence of just showing unconditional love. Which leads us to the third point. Humility in our calling. Now the this, this situation, the scene of serving is no longer about building bonfires, but about healing people who are sick. Notice how this has now going to turn into a demonstration of the power of God. And that's exactly what your presence is in this world. Your presence is the presence of the power of God, the power of God that's transforming you, the power of God that's helping you love others the way Jesus would love them. Aside from the power of God, we're hopeless. But praise God, He is our ultimate resource to live the lives that He's called us to live. Amen? So here they are, you know, verse 4, verse 5, right? He's guilty. He's a God. They don't know where to land. Eventually, I believe Paul is going to share with them the power, right, that is working to heal. Verse 7, now, the neighbor, in that neighborhood of the place, there's a land belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius. This is Rome's representative on Malta. And he's the guy in charge. And I, what I love is like, it's not Mr. Publius. It's not, you know, a dictator Publius. It's Publius. This guy's a friendly cat. And he's got the gift of hospitality because well, notice what happens. He welcomes them all over to his house and entertains us courteously for three days. 276 people. Babe, you entertain 15 people. Publius is doing 276. He's got a big house. Big house. For three days, and notice the, the, the descriptive, courteously. Ladies and gentlemen, here are unbelievers showing extraordinary kindness. Here are unbelievers showing courteousness. We, we need to do better, those who are called by his name. Amen? Sometimes those who are non-believing are outdoing believers in how they are treating other human beings. Publius says, come over. <laughs> we'll slaughter a cow. We'll fry up some snakes. I don't know. We'll eat something. 
And I love what Paul does. He hears that Plubius' dad is sick. And without even asking, there's no invitation, Paul immediately goes to his dad and miraculously heals him. Don't wait to be asked to do what God is leading you to do. Amen? We're standing back just kind of be like, well, I'm not going to do anything Tom asked. Stop. Paul goes, there's need, and I believe God wants me to address that need. And he goes in, and notice what he does. Two things in this text. He prays, and then he lays hands. The only time in the book of Acts that praying and laying hands are together. Why? Because here's the moment Paul is going to introduce God into the conversation. He's been, he's, he's there. Paul's never one to go like, I'm off duty. I'm not going to talk about Jesus today. No, no, no. He acknowledges the source of power, God. He prays and Publius's dad is miraculously healed. Then look what happens. And it came about that the dad was healed, verse 9, and after this had happened, the rest of the island heard. So they come with their diseases, and they're getting cured. Here's what I want you to notice. Verse 8 uses the word healed. Verse 9 uses the word cured. Healed is a miracle. Cured is medical attention. Humility in our calling. Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was able to do miraculous things all throughout his ministry. Remember who was with Paul? Luke. What's Luke's profession? It would make sense that Luke would step in and be like, Paul, this is my jurisdiction. Thanks so much. I, I can take over from here. Luke humbly bows out to let Paul do a miracle. But then the language of the text suggests then there's some medical attention being given to the rest of the islanders. This is where Luke comes in and is a doctor. No miracle, just modern medicine. This is so cool. It's like Luke goes, this is, this is Paul's deal. And then Paul goes, Luke, it's your turn. And they collaborate, right? Divine healing, earthly methods can coexist in the same time and same place. Amen? We can pray for miracles, but don't ignore modern medicine. And while you put so much stock in modern medicine, don't ignore the power of God to do what he wants to do. And I love it when they are able to just kind of play off one another. I love this. We were at the Hungry Monk sports bar months ago. Jeremy was part of it. Uh, this, the Tuesday night men's discussion. And here's one thing about the Hungry Monk. It's a sports bar. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, people are drinking. They're playing trivia. They're watching sports, right? And what would happen on occasion was that uh, we're out on the patio and drunk people would come out on the patio and want to be a part of our conversation. There's nothing like ministering to drunk people. There's nothing like ministering to drunk people, right? Like, 
here's what I believe. You know what? You know, there's some of us that are filled with the Spirit, and then there's others filled with distilled spirits, right? And you know, they can coexist at the same time, the same place. So this drunk guy comes out. He's like, what the F are you guys talking about, right? Like, says, and we're just kind of like, Jesus. He's like, oh, cool. Can I effing get in on this? Like, and all the guys are like, you know, and some guys are like, I wish we weren't interrupted right now. We're having a serious conversation, and we're all like, sit down, right? And, but there was a moment, and this guy did this for a period of weeks. And it got to a point where it's like, okay, we, we, I just felt like we needed to do something because I think it was really taken away from the discussion. So we're showing this guy grace, but then there's also time maybe for some boundaries. Um, so note to self, any Bible study leaders, anyone comes drunk to your Bible study, you know, there's some proper protocol you can, you can incorporate. But here's what I love about Jeremy. One night, Jeremy sensed it, and he pulls the guy aside, and they start having a little side conversation so that the rest of us could stay on track with what we were talking about. And I do believe that there was this moment where I think it was a deep connection, something deep we were talking about, and this guy was just a distraction. I'm not going to say he was a pawn of Satan, but it was close, right? So he was kind of creeping in, and Jeremy just stepped up and said, I'm going to pull this guy aside. He didn't say it. He just did it. And afterwards, I went up to Jeremy, and I said, thank you, brother, for pulling this guy aside. They had probably a 30-minute conversation off in the corner. But we tag-team this moment, right? There's things that I, I'm, I'm good with. There's things that Jeremy's good with. And we partnered together on that night at the Hungry Monk among drunk people, ministering the gospel of Jesus in different ways. And i just so thankful for that time that we can recognize one another to say, you know what, you're really good at this, you're really good at that. We're not competing against one another, we complement one another in the things that we're good at. Amen? So let us recognize that. Not all can speak like me, not, other, uh, not all can have one-on-one -on -one conversations like, like Jeremy, not all, everyone can pull you know, stuff out of their freezer and feed 15 people like Lori, and not everyone can skateboard like you know, Ryan or whatever. Like, we all do different things. That was what makes us the body of Christ. I don't know. I'm just thinking random things. Sorry. So, uh, amen? They compliment one another. Luke wasn't like, doggone it, Paul's healing again. That's my area. No, no. Luke gladly let Paul serve. And then when Paul said, you know, Luke, I need you to step in, they complimented one another. What a great combination of medical skill, divine healing, two gifts of God to be used for God's glory. And for three months, they're doing this among people who have shown them the utmost hospitality. And in the end, Christian, believer, this island was made better because of the presence of God's people. You and I should make every environment we enter into better. We all can act pretty good at church. That's not your test. This is easy. Leaving this place, that, this gathering we call the church, is easy. To act like Christ. But once we leave this place, this is where the true test of discipleship happens. When you're living among the heathen, you're living among the pagans, you're living among the natives, the barbarians, whatever you want to call them, there are men and women created in the image of God and worthy of dignity and value and respect. Here's my question to you. This doesn't matter how the world treats you. This, the question I'm pressing into is how are you treating the world? And it may not be reciprocated. Matter of fact, let me go out on a limb and say it won't be. 
Your kindness and your compassion will not be returned. Just expect that. And not the kind of like, since I gave up hope, I feel a lot better mentality. I'm not asking that. But what I'm saying is, every person you meet, when you leave them, they should feel better about themselves because you entered their lives. And every place you go to, and I don't care if it's Circle K or Fry's, your work, your school, wherever you are going, you're going to make that place better. Because that's what the people of God do. People should cry when you depart and not clap because good riddance. You should be making your neighborhoods better. You should be making your workplaces better. You should be making your schools better. You should be making our country, our county, our city better. We should be making our world better. But before we get to the world, let's just think about our own homes and our own communities first. Wherever the people of God are at, there should be gladness. There should be generosity. There should be grace. Flowing like rivers. Because these people... Look how they respond. And verse 10, and they honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. This means they're going to sail, seven, travel 320 miles to Rome, 276 people. They didn't have a need in the world. Because here's what happens, and Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 15, verse 27. There's something when there is a distribution of spiritual blessing that you receive material blessing in return. Can I? I'm going I'm to do a little bit of an of a appetizer before the main entree. We're going to talk about generosity in a couple weeks. One of the areas that God continues to to challenge us all in is, is how generous, generous we are. And I'm not talking about generosity with time. And I'm not talking about generosity with, with resources. I'm talking about generosity with our finances. You know, we've salvation's free, but ministry costs. Some of us need to start giving. You come and you take, but you don't give. This is not what I want for you. This is, what I want. This is what, not what I want from you. This is what I want for you. This is my, my wife goes, are you going to say that? I'm going to say yes and many times over. When I speak about generosity, this is not about what I want from you. This is what I want for you. Jesus says the number one indicator of your spiritual health is how much money you give to God's work. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. Here's the litmus test. We never pass a plate. We have never passed a plate. In 30 years of ministry, we have never passed a plate, yet God seems to supply all of our needs. But that doesn't mean I have to occasionally say, church, we need to do better. We don't give that which is safe. We don't give that which is comfortable. Giving ought to be a sacrifice. And last time I checked, sacrifice can be painful. Some of us need a, a, a renewed theology when it comes to generosity. Some of us need to hear the words of God once again when it comes to generosity.
But you come and you receive spiritual blessing. Now the work of God needs material blessing. And he's looking to you. So ushers, pass the place. No, we don't have that going on right now. I know, yeah, tip jar. Yeah, what church has a tip jar, right? Like, here we are, fill the tip jar, right? You know what? I am the pastor that you're going to meet that is not afraid to talk about money. And I'm not even the kind of pastor that's afraid to say, let's open up our bank accounts and look at where all of our money is going. Because as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And we're going to give. And I've got kids in private school, and I've got kids in sports, and I've got kids going to the state fair. This is not cheap living. It's hard. But you know who gets the first of the, of the fruit? God does. Proverbs chapter 3. Oh, Lord, as you fill the storehouse, you're going to get the first fruits. Don't give God your chump change. You give God first out of the abundance of what he's given to you. You are not owners of everything, anything. You are the managers of everything God has entrusted to you. You've received spiritual blessings from those men and women who have served you if this is your church, if you believe that the kingdom work is taking place in and through us, it is time to be blessed in material ways. Oh, we're going to do a deep dive into this after Acts. We're only going to spend two or three weeks in it. But I need to hear it again. You need to hear it again. Right? Even Paul says, you've grown a little bit lack in your giving. So guess what we're going to talk about? We're planning for budgets. We got, we got great guys who are coming on board and want to, want to serve you all the more, but you know what? If we can't afford to take care of them, which we should take care of them, guess what? If we don't have it in our coffers, we can't do that. Salvation's free, but ministry costs, and ministers cost a lot of money. But have you been blessed spiritually? Oh, reflect it in your giving. And no, the tip jar is not available. You can give with your envelope. You can give online. Right? We don't tip God. We sacrifice for God. Shameless side note. All right. Back to Acts 28. See how I can do this with a smile on my face? It's not what I want from you. It's what I want for you. The man and woman who sacrifices everything for the kingdom they are the most happy people in the world because they realize it's, it doesn't belong to us. Amen? So these guys, they make the most of every situation. They're making people better. They're making environments better. Paul is reflecting what God wants, not Jonah. You could, you could be like Jonah. Remember last week? His presence was an annoyance. They throw him off the boat. Be, be like Paul. Galatians 6.10. Here's, here's a verse for application. I love how Paul concludes this. So then, as we have opportunity, which I will tell you is every single day, let us do good to just the people who vote like you, the people who look like you, the people who are only in this kind of relationship and not that kind. This, you do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Thank you, Paul. Now off to Rome, and we'll close with this. Encouragement in our honoring. 
it's interesting how this idea of honoring is throughout this section here, right? Verse 10, the islanders honored us with many marks of respect. They gave us all we needed, and then all of a sudden, these guys jump on. Can you imagine maybe a little bit of the PTSD these guys had just based upon what they just went through? Now we're on another boat. These guys were, these guys were tough. They get on another boat, and they sail. They're going to Rome. And they hit, you know, several cities along the way, and they eventually end up in the Bay of Naples, where they will then walk on foot. But let me just say something real quick. Again, honor in this passage, if I was to summarize it again, three Gs, I mentioned to them just a moment ago, grace, generosity, gladness. It's how we honor one another, showing grace, being generous, being glad. Oh, to be honored among unbelievers. That's the first blank in your notes. Julius and Publius. This sounds like a hip-hop group, right? Here we are. Give it up for Julius and Publius. Yeah. So cool, right? Like, um, yeah, so here they are. Julius honors Paul. Like, Julius is the head of this whole entourage. Prisoners going to Rome to be executed. He likes Paul. He gives Paul leverage. He gives Paul space. He allows Paul to do ministry. Wow, they respect him. Publius respects this dude. The islanders respect him, right? There's this honor among unbelievers that you don't demand. Can I just tell you right now, you don't demand honor, you earn it. Right? When people respect you, don't be the kind of husband who's like, my wife needs to respect me. And I go, well, you need to start acting like Jesus, full stop, period. You do not demand respect, you earn it. And I'll tell you what, the best honor you could ever receive from a believer or unbeliever is that honor that just says, you, you look like Christ, you act like Christ, you talk like Christ, your spirit resembles Christ. That's what happens here. And here they are, honored among unbelievers. And then, notice what happens, and I love this scene here. So check this out. Verse 14, and they found some brethren in Pitioli. I think that's how you pronounce it. Because the gospel has already gone to this area, uh, we probably, Acts 2, right? When people had from all over the, uh, the region had come, Pentecost, people are saved, they go back to their, their hometowns. Churches are here. This is why Paul wrote to the Romans three years prior to his visit. Romans was written three years before he came to land. He had a desire to go to Rome back in Ephesus about eight years before this. And the dream is finally coming to reality. And in his letter to the Romans, I want you to hear what he wrote. Because it's going to make this, this meeting other believers here in this area all the more like impactful. Romans chapter 15. He writes to the Romans, who he has never met, who he longs to see, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem for they were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them. 
And here's that language of generosity. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. Just like El Jefe Scott just said. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And I know that when I come to you, I will come to you in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed by your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So they get this letter. Three years later, Paul's coming to town. And you know what they do? Remember what Paul wrote? Let's go meet him. Let's go give him the welcome of all welcomes. And let me just tell you, sometimes Italians party like the best. And they don't wait for Paul to get to Rome. Notice what happens, verse 15. And the brethren, they heard about us coming. They came there as far as the market of Appius, 40 miles away to meet them. And the three taverns, wouldn't that be a cool place to live? Where do you live, three taverns? Awesome. 30 miles away. These men and women walk more than a day's journey so that Paul can be met on his way to Rome and that they can accompany him into the great city that is called Rome. And there he meets them, men and women he've never met physically before, but their spirits have been bound to one another. And it says, and when he saw them, he thanked God and took courage. I will call this Paul's triumphal entry. Here is a man who I believe knows that his ministry days are coming to an end. And he's not going to quit. He's going to preach to, to the most powerful people in the world. But before he even gets there, as much as the journey has been arduous and difficult, he sees believers coming from 30 miles and 40 miles and they're hugging and they're kissing and they're embracing and they're like, thank you for the letter. Thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for the prayers. Thank you for the service. And they go marching together 140 miles. This journey started on foot five days. You think he needed a little bit of a boost in the, in the midst of this? Yes. And he comes and he's honored by other believers. You guys, we need to honor one another more than hate on one another, more than heap on hurt on one another. We need to honor one another. And sometimes that honor is just booing someone's spirit who may be down. It's praying, it's giving, it's encouraging, it's supplying a meal, it's taking somebody out for coffee, it's, it's doing something because you honor this person. Here is this man, Paul, a prisoner, and yet they rally around him and offer him hope, and, they, and he's acting more like, I'm a participant in a party. And they go into Rome together. Wow. 
Even mature spiritual believers need inspiration and strength, which can only be delivered by other Christians in authentic fellowship with one another. Amen? Story of my friend Brian, who uh, he, uh, when the pandemic was, was happening, he was hospitalized, healthy dude, hospitalized and had severe complications from COVID. Some of you know Brian. Brian's giving me permission to share this. I saw Brian Friday night at a football game. He was in the hospital for 90 days and given a 1% chance of survival. And if you saw Brian today, you would never guess he had gone through that difficult season in his life. Friday night we're talking. He says, I just got back from the Northwest where I met with 20 couples who had reached out to my family and said, we're praying for Brian. He's never met these people before. He doesn't know who they are. He only knows that when this prayer thing went out, people from all over the uh, world contacted Brian's wife and said, we're praying for Brian. Brian's going up to the Northwest because he's attending a wedding. He goes, I want to stop by and see these brothers and sisters that had been praying for me. So he reached out to them. And all the, of these 20 couples that had promised to pray for Brian, eight of them met Brian. And they hugged. And they cried. And they don't even know each other. And yet there was something that knit their spirits deeper than, than, a, than an earthly connection. He goes, those people welcomed me and loved me like I had known them forever. And he said, the blessings from my trials continue to impact my life deeply. And I was like, dude, that is so cool. What, what honor that's reciprocated in that moment, right? They honored Brian saying, we're fellow believers and we want our brother in Christ to get through this. And he honored them by saying, I'm in town. And I want you to know how much your prayers for me and my family meant to me. And there's this exchange of honor. And now there's a story that every single one of those participants will go to the grave with. That only the Spirit can bring forth. That only God can get the glory for. Ladies and gentlemen, let us, we don't have to cross the country to honor one another. Let us do better. And showing one another respect. Showing one another just that appreciation. Coming alongside one another and saying, we are in this thing together. Let us honor one another. And all God's people said, let's stand, let's pray. Father, clothe us today with encouragement. Clothe us with the wardrobe that is so found in the character of Christ that is present among your people, but oh Lord, we can do a better job in clothing ourselves in these things. Thank you for the greatest demonstration of love that while we are yet sinners, Christ comes and dies for us. 
Lord, that we have a Savior who did not come to be served, but to serve. Lord, there's nothing in Christ that is discouraging. But everything we see in His demonstration of grace and mercy and kindness, it is an encouragement to us that, yes, we can do better by your strength, with your help. We can do better. If we have been blessed by encouragement from you, O oh God, may we be a wellspring of encouragement to all we come in contact with. We pray your will be done. We pray that your blessings would be experienced. Lord, thank you for being so good to us and giving us a world in which to live where we can continue to share the blessings we've received with others. Lord, thank you again for this gathering, for your people, for being the God who empowers us to live the lives you desire us to live. Lord, we need your help. Help us to live for your glory and your honor in your great name forever and ever. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face toward you and give you his grace forever and ever and ever. Amen, guys.